Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians, where we're today in chapter 2, and in particular, verse 19 down through verse 21, but in order to be able to see the context in which these verses are to be understood, we're going to have to start reading in verse 15, where we overlap with last week's study, that study tied to Reformation Sunday, where we talked about justification by grace through faith in Christ, in Christ alone. And so now we pick up, and beginning in verse 15 of this second chapter, we find these words, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So now Paul succinctly describes what the gospel life looks like one who has put faith and trust in Jesus, is a condensed version of what he expands upon in Romans chapter 6. You read a few verses here, you want to see it in conjunction with what he will later articulate about 10 years later in his writings than to the Romans, where an entire chapter is devoted to what does it mean to live this kind of life before God. Well, to understand this, we're going to have to first of all look to our Lord in prayer. Father, we are thinking about the fact that on a day like today, we adjust clocks. Yet we stand before the timeless one. Who Paul would tell us that in the fullness of time, he'd send forth his son. So I thank you, Father, for you are the timeless one and you work in a timely way. You take us through experiences that, frankly, were not on our radar to fulfill purposes that we had never even considered, to bring glory to yourself when we came into this world as sinners and capable of doing that. You sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, On the third day, you raised him from the dead. 
ascended into heaven. He's seated at your right hand. He will return. These pivotal truths we embrace. And it's your timeless truth, Father, that we apply. In these moments together now, what we're praying is that as we always do, that you would warm these hearts of ours. Engage these minds of ours. Shape these wills of ours. For again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever you and your family members are prone to go east to get a better sense of our beginnings as a nation, it might be possible, or maybe you have already done so, to drop by the Jefferson Hotel in Richmond. What's interesting is that at some time in the not-too-distant past, the columns of the hotel had been painted over. And during the renovation, they removed ten coats of paint. What's fascinating is that underneath, they found incredibly beautiful and valuable pink marble beneath those ten coats of paint. What's interesting is that the very thing which was of highest value had been covered up over the years and been forgotten. As Paul looks on the religious landscape, he realizes that the essential gospel of Jesus Christ is beginning to be covered up by a group of individuals known as Judaizers. Judaizers. Who, so to speak, with their religious paint cans, come along and say, it's as if what Jesus Christ did on the cross was not valuable enough. We need to be able to add something more to what he did. Until you end up with something different than what was intended. And what is intended has now been concealed. The very same issue in 1517 that Martin Luther himself would face when he would attack those 95 theses to the castle door of Wittenberg so that he could take people back to that explicit, genuine gospel. That door was much like a modern-day Facebook where people could post things and interact, which is what they did as he drew their attention back to the essence of the gospel and not the additions that had taken place over the course of time. Now, you and I have been looking very carefully over the course of these months together at Galatians and the essence of the gospel. We've inched now into 19, 20, and 21 of this second chapter. And there we find the chapters begging the question in light of this idea of being justified in Christ. How should we then live? How should we then live? Because the Judaizers, these ones who are additionists, they got their calculators and they're adding to Christ's work on the cross, their rules, their regulations, they've got their own rule book, and they're ready at hand to be able to add their traditions to the essence of the gospel. They're quickly prone to say, well, Paul, you see, 
if you claim that one is simply and solely justified by grace, through faith, in Christ, and not by our works, you're simply promoting a sinful lifestyle. Why, if we add some critical religious rules to the gospel, it will better equip people then to be able to refrain from sin, restrain their sinful tendencies, and we know which rules are essential. This is the essence now of the argument that Paul is about to refute. Because if we are to condense what he is now about to do, say, and address, he realizes that there is this challenge at hand. The Judaizers want to take their rules and apply pressure from without. What Paul is about to articulate is not pressure from without, but rather the person from within, Jesus Christ. And the best way to be able to counteract that sinful nature is not from pressure from without, but rather fully embracing the reality of the person from within. Not to be isolated from sin of this world, but rather to be insulated by the working of Jesus Christ within our hearts so that we're equipped to deal with the sin of this world. Not pressure from without, but person from within. Not isolation from, but insulation for. And so now, what Paul is about to do is to offer you and me pure marble the real gospel, as it gets now worked out in a practical, everyday lifestyle. And what I want to do with you now is simply embrace two significant distinctives. It's always been my favorite, a two-pointer in my teachings. But each of these two-pointers have two sub-pointers attached. But here we go. Notice carefully, it says in verse 17, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, not justified by ourselves, justified in Christ, that is your country, in Christ. Here then is your first distinctive. Those who are justified in Christ know this, number one, Christ died for us, and we died with him. Christ died for us, and we died with him. Now you say, Gary, break it down, if you will, into bite-sized pieces. Let's do our best. Let's start with the idea of Christ died for us. Where do we get that from in these verses? Look very carefully at how verse 20 in particular is phrased. See if you can underline spotted X. Put an exclamation point next to it. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who what? Here it comes. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Here now is our starting point. 
where Christ died for us, therefore, and we died with him. The idea of Christ died for us comes from this phrase, who loved me and gave himself for me. But now we've got to look at this even more carefully and break it down further. Notice that phrase, who loved me. He loved you. Before eternity kicked time into reality, he loved you. And the astounding thing about this love, this agape-type love, is that there are at least three marks associated with it. He loves you willingly, not involuntarily. In an eternity past, the second member of the Trinity chose to step out of eternity into time and to demonstrate that love at that cross for you and for me. He had you, he had me in mind. But he did so willingly. He was not under coercion, not involuntarily. Righteously, yet willingly. But furthermore, you'll notice that it says, who loved me. The Godhead is all-knowing. If he loved me and chose to love me before the foundations of the earth, that means that he also loves me knowingly, not ignorantly. This is no blind love. This is no love from a distance where you and I might look lovable, therefore he can love us. Here's the astounding reality that Highlander is 100% unlovable due to his sinful nature. And yet the second member of the Trinity, fully knowing my sinful nature, willingly, knowingly, chooses to love this sinner who loved me. Willingly, not involuntarily. Knowingly, not ignorantly. But furthermore, sacrificially, not self-servingly. And you say, well, Gary, to what degree are we to understand that this was done sacrificially, not self-servingly? Notice the next phrase, and gave himself for me. Notice that it says, gave himself. There again, you and I are reminded that he is sovereignly involved in the taking of this life. Not Pilate. Not Herod. They may think they are in control. But you and I are informed that he gave himself. That is the astounding aspect, you see, of this love. For if Herod had been in control, or Pilate would have been in control, then you might wonder to what degree was there such love. But the fact that this love is provided sacrificially, that he willingly, knowingly, sacrificially demonstrates this love for you and for me, and gave himself, and not merely gave himself, gave himself for me informs you, informs me that this love act on that cross established the satisfaction of God's wrath. It was fulfilled 
upon the sinner. The penalty is paid. And the substitution for the sinner via Jesus Christ himself. You say, Gary, can you help me with that? Let's give it a shot. Deal Moody once told the story of a young man who didn't want to serve in Napoleon Bonaparte's army. So when he was drafted, a friend volunteered to go in his place. The substitution was made. And sometime later, the surrogate was killed in battle. Now the same young man was, through a clerical error, drafted again. You can't take me, he told the startled officers. I'm dead. I died on the battlefield. Now they argued that they could see him standing right there in front of them, but he insisted that they check out the roll, find the record of his death. They did, and sure enough, there on the roll was the man's name with another name written beside it. The case finally came to Napoleon himself, and as Moody puts it, Napoleon examined the evidence and said, through a surrogate, this man has not only fought, but has died in his country's service. No man can die more than once. Therefore, the law has no claim on him. Look how that fits together with what we are examining. Christ died for us, who gave, who loved me and gave himself for me. But connect this with the other thought now. We died with him. He died for us. We died with him. I said, now Gary, out of 19 and 20 in particular, how do we pull that thought together? Look very carefully at how it's phrased in verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. Let's start with that phrase, I died to the law. What does he mean by this? Well, remember, Jesus Christ entered into this world under the law. But as Paul would remind you and me before we become overly atomistic with this particular verse, in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. In other words, Jesus Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. You can't add the ceremonial law to your faith. It's been fulfilled. But the moral law remains intact, that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and so on, because that is God's standard for holiness by which the Holy Spirit guides us and directs us to become increasingly more like Jesus Christ. The law, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 4, is holy and righteous and good. But as we reminded ourselves in prior weeks, Paul, in the Greek language, did not have a word for both law and legalism, so they're groped grouped under the very same word. And so his own personal experience helps us to understand what he means by this. Where in Philippians chapter 3, he would go on to say, 
If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, and for zeal persecuting the church, and for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. He said, I died to that stuff that I was raised with. All those things I would describe in Philippians chapter 3. But furthermore, he goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. Now let's begin to develop that a little bit together. Have you considered the powerful ways that Paul in his writings uses the word with to begin to describe one's relationship to Jesus Christ. I thought about that. Came across some of these phrasings, some of these words. Why, when Jesus Christ was on that cross and there was that particular thief that wanted to be with Jesus, he said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me. In paradise. With me. In paradise. There was that one who was demonized. Where Mark chapter 5 verse 1 down through verse 20. Begged Jesus that he might be with him. And then I came across this from William Booth. Founder of the Salvation Army. Where he wrote these words. Best beloved of my soul. I am here alone with thee. And my prison is a heaven, since thou sharest it with me. And I thought of Georgie Vins, who had been persecuted for his faith, while in a Russian prison would write these words, It is better to be with him in prison, he added, than at liberty than at liberty without him. But you see, what the Judaizers were doing was trying to remove the liberty that you and I have in Christ. In first service today, I got the opportunity to hear the king's delegates. It's a quartet. When I was growing up, our particular church, we didn't have a foursome that could sing like that. We had a foursome that my cousin, who's now a pastor, and I called the Prison Quartet. The reason is because they were always behind a few bars and always looking for the key. Now, what these Judaizers are doing at this point is they're trying to put you behind bars. And nobody can find the key. And along comes Jesus. And he sets the captive free. I have been crucified with Christ. Death is all-consuming, isn't it? Death is completely inflexible. 
You can't negotiate with it. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. And what fascinates me in the Greek language is that the Greek word used here could be rendered co-crucified. Co-crucified. And so you and I track the usage of that word with Christ throughout Paul's writings, and you realize, for example, here... We died with Christ, but in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, we're informed that we are raised with Christ. We're taught in the book of Ephesians that we are hidden with Christ. And furthermore, we are informed that someday we will appear with Christ. Do you see the sequence of thought and the brilliance of the witness of Christ? Died with Christ, raised with Christ, hidden with Christ, appear with Christ. It is about Christ and Him alone. And I thought about that when I came across this, describing a man who years ago would be involved in various concerts. His name was Bill Mann, and He had a friend who says that I remember the time in which a man told me about the most special concert in his life. It was after a concert was over, and he returned to his dressing room, and waiting there was a woman who was blind, deaf, and mute. And through the lady who was with her, she asked if if he would sing for her the last song he sang in the concert. Surely, he said. And standing only five inches from his face and placing her fingers on his lips and on his vocal cords, he sang again, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And as he finished singing, a tear trickled down the face of Helen Keller Indistinctly, she said, as the words were repeated by the lady with her. I was there. We died with him. I died to that legalism that Paul would develop further in the book of Philippians chapter 3. I have been crucified with Christ. Ponder the significance of the prepositions of the Bible. Christ died for us. Christ lives in us. I am crucified with Christ. I stand upon Christ. I live under Christ. Powerful. But then he leaves you hanging here, doesn't he? He leaves you hanging. Because then he adds this particular phrase. And I no longer live. This is the ultimate and complete contrast to what happened in that Garden of Eden. When God said, in the day in which you eat of this, you will surely die. And Adam ate and he walked out of that garden. 
separated from God, yet physically alive. Here is the exact opposite now. You have been crucified not apart from Christ, but with Christ. In this form of death, you partake of it, and now, rather than being estranged from God, you are in relationship with God via second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And you say to yourself, okay, now it says I no longer live. So then how do I go about living when I no longer live? That's a great question. And you had about an hour's extra worth of sleep last night. Think about it, didn't you? Well, here now is the second significant distinctive that I think comes out of this. Our second main thought. That number two, those who are justified in Christ know this. Christ lives in us and we live for him. Pull those two main thoughts together. First main thought, Christ died for us and we died with him. Second main thought, Christ lives in us and we live for him. But break it down further. Let's now think through, what does this mean Christ lives in us? Again, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And you hold your breath and say, what does this mean for me? And here's the answer. But Christ lives in me. Not apart from me. In me. And so I look at that, and now I see the argument Paul is making against the legalists who come with their rule book and want to add to the gospel their ten coats of paint. He's saying, you, the sinful ones, are attempting to apply pressure from without. What I am saying is that Christ, the sinless one, is applying the person from within. Now, which of the two alternatives is the better approach to be able to handle the matter of sin in this world? The pressure from sinful ones who have their own rule book from without? Or the person who died in my place? The person from within. Now, you and I are informed that Christ lives in us. What does that now presume? Two main thoughts. Number one, resurrection. Resurrection. He had to be raised from the dead in order to live within my heart, within my life. So when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, it's knowing the fact that I have a risen, resurrected Savior. And the resurrection validates the work involved in the crucifixion. But not only does this imply resurrection, this also implies residence. He not merely lives, he lives in me. Do you see how personal your Christian experience is if you have been justified in Christ? Here's the interesting thing. You are justified in Christ, therefore Christ lives in you. See that little preposition, how it's working, developing itself in your gospel lifestyle, 
And I think about the fact that not only has Christ been resurrected, he lives, but Christ establishes residence, Christ lives in me. Now, friends, Jesus is not your visitor. He doesn't come and go based upon how tough your life situation is. He's not on the outside. He resides on the inside. You take him with you in the most difficult circumstances of life. And now you've got to ask yourself, am I prone to bow to the pressures from without? Or am I prone to embrace the person from within? I'm astounded by this fact. It's packed with meaning of both resurrection and residence. Christ lives. Resurrection. In me. Residence. He's transportable. He's in me as I go with him. Isn't that beautiful? This is the justified in Christ's life. I am justified in Christ. Christ lives in me. And that inness works with this withness. And now you've got a beautiful sense of what gospel life is. But there's something more here. We said that Christ lives in us. But there is something more. We live for him. And you say, well, Gary, where do you get that? In verse 19, it ends with that I might live for God. Camp on that thought. Sometimes a person will be sitting with me in my office and they're wrestling with why go on. What's the purpose for living? By God's grace, I try to wisely walk them through the purposefulness of living that I might live not for myself, not for those who bully me, not for that one who has so impacted me negatively. I live for God who sent his son to die for me and now lives within me. That answers the why question of life. Why am I here? Answer, I live for God. Years ago in the cartoon strip B.C., the creator of it is going to be with the Lord. He loved Jesus, Johnny Hart. Two cavemen were sitting on a rock watching a distant volcano. One says to the other, Do you suppose it's possible that after we die, we'll live? Four frames pass without a word. Finally, the other responds. What for? And Paul responds, We live for him. That I might live for God. That answers the why question. But we still have the how question. How then do I live for God? 
And here's the answer. I live by faith in the Son of God. And what astounds me now when I ponder the verses of Scripture with you is that we are saved by faith in Christ because he died for us. We live by faith in Christ because he lives in us. Did we catch that? We are saved by faith in Christ because he died for us. We live by faith in Christ. He lives in us. And now we're brought back to that Reformation Sunday experience a week ago where we considered the fact that we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. I live by faith. And now all of those individuals that are critiquing Paul have got to take a deep breath because his argument is brilliant here. He bookends 19 and 21 in this whole matter of being crucified with Christ. In essence, he says, when you are justified in Christ, as he articulated in verse 17, what this means then is you are not to be shaped by the pressure from without. Your life is to be governed by the person from within. And when the living Christ lives within you, you have been justified freely as we sung earlier. And you realize, I don't need ten coats of paint. The gospel is explicit. The gospel is pure. The gospel is Christ. And we've got to get back to the real Jesus. Question. Have you? Let's stand together. So, Father, we've tried now in these, in these three verses to be able to understand very clearly and totally biblically what you are saying to us. Christ died for us. We died with him. Christ lives in us. We live for him. And when we take these twins, the twin truths, and apply them to our everyday living, it radically transforms our life. And it's this truth that sets us free. So, Father, I pray now that we will take these thoughts, apply them to everyday living, and leave now different people than when we came. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.